And today we're continuing to study the last section, last teaching section of the book of Philippians. We're kind of coming around third base in this book study. We will wrap this up at the end of summer, early fall, then we'll move into something new. But it's very important that we we don't kind of fatigue at this point. And what I mean by that is uh, what we're talking about in Philippians 3 and Philippians 4, very, very important ideas. And in it, through this last section of teaching, we've been looking at these two prevalent themes in the Christian life laid out by Paul. The first address is how to follow Jesus in such a way that we can experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life. And the second, which you'll notice there are some thematic connections. What we're talking to, about today, what we just read in the Gospel of John, this idea of, of God coming to us. I read yesterday in Jeremiah that you know when we really seek God, when we really search for God, when we really want to find God, God becomes available to us. And so this idea of where we set up the residency of our mind or our hearts, what we focus our life's attention on, which is going to be very, uh, it's very clear in chapter 4, everything we've been talking about is present in chapter 3. Paul is talking about what it means to really live and know Jesus in ways that create a, a powerful joy in our lives. And so over these past weeks, we've been taking a detailed look and what it means to apply this rhythm Paul commands us to embrace in our lives in Philippians 3.17. It's here Paul tells us to look to him as an example, to look to others who are, you know, just dynamic in the faith. He says, fix your eyes, fix the ears of your heart on those types of people and follow in their example because they're really trying to love Jesus well. And we've used this truth in Philippians 3 as a springboard to look at other teachings in the Bible that deal with this critical following, followership issue mainly in the parable of the sower, which is where we spent the last month of our teaching. And it was there we learned the main way that a person can experience Jesus' joy in their life is when they make it a priority to listen to his truth by studying God's word with an open mind and a pure heart, an unbiased heart, greatest mark of the, the good soil. You approach God with an open mind and an unbiased heart. That was the subject of our sermon last week. It's online. I won't spend a lot of time here this morning, but you can refresh that or listen to it for the first time if you've missed it. And I really believe that we just scratched the surface of that truth last week. And so for these next weeks, I want to spend some time pressing into that truth, since it is so central to our faith, followership, and life in Jesus. I want to spend some time teaching through, this summer, the bedrock truths of the Christian faith. These are truths that really are a rudder of sorts for how we follow Jesus as individuals and the church family. Remember, churches are made up of individuals. We are a family because God has designated our, our lives for this, in this place at this time. And so our individual lives in Christ absolutely direct, to a very real degree, the corporate direction of our church. Super important that we never disconnect those two ideas. And in the past, we've labeled these bedrock truths. You, if you've ever been in a leadership meeting with me, you know, we used to call these the three S's. Studying God's word, socializing with our brothers and sisters in Jesus, and serving our neighbors in the name of Jesus. And while those are good labels, and they have served us well, earlier in this year, in February, I was really challenged to think through possibly clearer, clearer headings for what it is that we are trying to do. What it is that we want to build towards as a church family. Uh, clearer headings that give us a, a greater ability to practically apply those truths in our lives. And so I want to share with you, again, not new terms necessarily, but terms that are synonymous with what I just mentioned, but I think a little more pointed. The categories are gospel, community, and mission. Each one of those words I just shared with you represents these ideas. But I want to, for this next season in the life of our church, really create very clear headings in our own lives to assess where we are with the gospel of Jesus Christ, community, loving God's people, and mission, loving those who have yet to know God. 
And so for a great many of you pursuing Jesus, this relabeling will not be a new idea. You already have these rhythms in your life. But I don't want to assume that for everybody. And I certainly don't ever want us, any of us, including myself, to get to a place in our lives where we think we have these ideas down so pat that we're no longer pliable before God to learn or to grow in those areas. And so these, these headings are really the core substance of what make up a devoted follower of Jesus. They are the areas that Paul is calling us to follow him in and others who love Jesus well. They are, in a true sense, the pathway that a disciple walks. And it is those substances that I want to examine and apply over these next weeks. So today we piggyback on what we learned last week and press more deeply into what it means to have a heart that is good and noble before God. If you've been with us through the parable, what it means to have a heart that is good soil and can be used by God because it is receptive to listen to the truths of God. For these next few weeks, we're going to talk about what a life living in the good soil looks like. And today we begin to examine what it means to live this lifestyle, in particular, a lifestyle shaped by the gospel of Jesus, the truths of Jesus. So consider what we will study over these summer months, the necessary waypoints on the path of a person really trying to follow Jesus, the bedrock of the future of our church. And we'll look at two texts this morning to really show us what this means. And we'll jump right in and begin unpacking this. Two ideas we'll, we'll discuss this morning before we take communion with each other. The first is this. If you want to live in the good soil, and my assumption at this point is that every one of us at least should want to live in the good soil. We might come to the hard conclusion throughout these weeks that we're not in good soil. And that's okay. God is good and gracious and kind. If you come to that epiphany, God is showing you that because he cares for you. He cares for me. So don't see this as like what you're not. See this as what God wants you to be. If you want to live in the good soil, and that's my hope for all of us, you must learn to love and listen to Jesus with all of your heart. This was the whole premise of what good soil is based on what Jesus told us in the parable of the sower. And John 14, 23 through 25 kind of brings a more pointed edge to this reality. I'll reread it to you. Jesus replied, he's talking to a bunch of people trying to figure out who he is and how to follow him. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Key statement there. The idea of God coming to us is kind of bound up in, 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 in making a home in us. Think of that language there. Making a home in us because we are sort of making a home in him. We have decided that we're going to fix the attention of our minds and our hearts on the things of God. And when that ha happens, God gets this pretty powerful invitation to set up shop in our lives, in the midst of our hearts. That's the positive side of what Jesus says here. He then goes on to say, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So he, he kind of goes right to the, up the authority chain. He says, listen, these are not even my words. Like, these are God's words, my Father's words. And so here we learn that the root of all followership, the, the primary root of what Paul tells us to do in Philippians 3.17, is found in our desire to listen to Jesus with every fiber of our being. This is an important statement. Because today, we live in a world that has no shortage of ideas, expectations, and opinions about who people believe Jesus is. We are living in a world where there's almost, uh, I've actually heard sociologists deter, uh, identify this term, where they're saying we're living in a world now that is seeing the death of expertise. And the idea behind this is that uh, 
in a world where expertise doesn't matter anymore, in a world where, you know, I've joked here before where, you know, you can become a doctor by reading seven minutes of WebMD, or you can be a real estate agent by uh, reading five minutes of Zillow, you know. We live in this world where, with minimal input, people think they have a maximum ability to make decisions and determine direction in their life. And I saw this commercial uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was a car buying commercial. I think it was for, like, True Car. Or something. I hope I don't get sued for like saying that. But anyways, uh, and this guy was like, you know, he's he's this really like laid back guy, and he's on a lot, and he's showing like all the craziness of car dealerships, and he's like, you know, basically with this app, you you can be an expert in minutes. He's like, just put the car in, say what you want to pay, and bam, you're a car expert. And I thought, no, you're not. Like half these people don't even know how to put fuel in the car, let alone understand market <laughs> economics and all the things that go on here. But this is the world we live in. Like, hey, I read this one thing online, and I'm now an expert. And this has absolutely permeated the Christian church. Ask five people in our world who Jesus is, and you'll likely get 10 answers. The problem with this is that more often than not, some of those ideas, those expectations, and opinions of who Jesus is and what the Christian life is supposed to look like, they can be completely disconnected from who Jesus says he is and what the scripture actually describes Christianity as. And so essentially what happens here is we start to to crack one of the foundations of following Jesus. We start to practice a form of Christianity that is gospel-less. We no longer let the, you know, let's be frank. The person most qualified to speak about who Jesus is, is, there you go. You know, he, he doesn't even need an app for that. It may be helpful for us, but he doesn't need one. But some people will contest his very words. And so this begs an obvious question. Why, why is this the case? Well, the only Jesus-approved place we can get a truthful answer to this question is by searching for it in the Scripture. And here's where a very simple solution to a serious problem gets very complicated in our world today. And I want to, I want to explain this by giving you an example. This is a true story. Uh, years ago, I had a, a memorable conversation with a person that practically explains what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is a person that I had a pretty strong relationship with, and I had been talking to them about a very particular issue for years, a very particular teaching in the Bible for years. And in this case, it was a teaching that is, it's, it's just undeniably blunt. There's no way to get around it. And this is sort of what confused me so much. Now, let me say here, this is a place where we love skepticism, uh, we're great with doubt, we're okay with objections to Christianity. I love that DNA of our church. I have always loved that. This is a no-judgment zone for wherever people are coming from to explore Christianity. And our desire, our hope, is that you'll grow in Jesus. But sometimes people, I have found, uh, and I, when I say people, I'm saying I can totally be subjected to this reality in my own life. I can constantly be searching for truth from God, but not ever really finding it. That can happen in our lives if we're not careful. And this is what happened here. There are times, I think, where there are issues in the Bible that we can land on different interpretations about, and everything can be okay. For example, you know, when you think Jesus is coming back, like you might, if you really are a student of the Word, you might have a different opinion on when He's going to return, and when the millennium is going to be, and when the tribulation is going to be, all of these things, you know, we can kind of land on different places and still be really okay. They're, they're non-essentials, but they're still important. On the contrary, there are some things in the scripture so clearly laid out that you have to wonder why there is so much dispute about what it says. And this isn't a new thing. I mean, in Jesus' day, he was saying things about himself, and people were like, absolutely not. I'm never going to believe that. And so this particular issue had to do with whether or not God deemed Jesus, his son, the only way to be forgiven our sins and restored to God. And I want to say at the outset of this, as a guy who for like 20 three years of my life didn't believe that, I am totally sympathetic about why a person would not want to believe that. 
I can get in the head of somebody and really feel their objections. But at the end of the day, when we, when we talk about Christianity, in order to keep it the way Jesus wants it, this is really not an issue that can be disputed. In other words, we can wrestle with it for all of our days. But at the end of the day, this is something Jesus himself has said. And so in John 14, 6, he says this. He says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, call me crazy, but that's, a, that's as clear a statement as, as you can get. I mean, Jesus says, I'll paraphrase, nobody gets to God unless they come through me. He literally said that. And after talking about Jesus' words here, this is a professing Christian. It becomes clear to me why they couldn't believe this. And the issue wasn't a matter of could they believe this. It was the mammoth issue, the bigger issue. They wouldn't believe it. There was a direct refusal to believe this. Now, that reasoning was further solidified through a key statement. It is sort of the two ideas I want to bounce through for the rest of the morning. This person had made to me proving that they developed a resistance in their heart to God's truth. This is the first three soils, right? It's in different ways. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes we are distracted. Sometimes we get very excited, but we're not in it for the long haul. All kinds of ways to resist and reject God's truth. Only one good soil, the soil that receives the word and, and grows in it. They told me when approaching the Bible, because remember, we're talking about a verse in Scripture from Jesus' mouth. They said, when, when I approach the Bible, when I am trying to figure out what Jesus is saying, I always approach the Bible by asking this question first. When I read this, what does it say to me? Now, I'm going to repeat it. When I read this, what does it say to me? Now, on the surface level, that question sounds okay. I mean, you have to kind of camp on it a little bit to see where there could be a problem with it. And I said this, I said, in a very gentle way, this is where I think our problem is. This is why we, we can't seem to find common ground in this, like these words here. It's why we might not find common ground in other areas where words are spoken by Jesus. I told him over the years, I'd learned to ask a different question when approaching the Bible. And I go to it asking this, uh, God, Father, Abba, Daddy, whatever you call him, what are you trying to say to me through this? Now, that's like almost a bit of a wordplay. But I'm telling you, those, the minor adjustment of those words creates two very different questions that breed two very different answers when it comes to what your life in Jesus looks like. The first, what, do you, what does this mean to me, answers a question that, that is a, it's a problem, frankly. I don't know how else to say it. Because that, the, the root of that question is, how do I follow myself? The arbiter of truth in this situation, if you approach the scripture and say, what does this say to me? What does this mean to me? That can be a good question if it's qualified by other questions. But if you put a period or, you know, a period after the question mark, what happens here, you will grow in a, in a form of faith. It's just going to be your own. While the second creates a form of Christianity where you start to look more like Jesus, which is the chief aim of the Christian life. And so you see the, the what does this say to me, the what does this mean to me approach if we apply that to following Jesus, it becomes a very dangerous approach. Because when a person thinks like that and is confronted with a new truth about who Jesus says he is, a truth that doesn't resonate with them, this is a serious one here, a, a truth that challenges them, a truth that starts to change what God expects of us, what happens in this person's life is they, they have ultimately learned to ask a question in their life that is a, it's, it's not a good one. They're, they're looking to an ultimate authority that is no longer God in a faith where they've affirmed the followership of God. They ask, what do I ultimately think about this matter in my life? Not what does God ultimately think about this matter for my life? Those are two entirely different questions. 
and they lead to two entirely different Christian outcomes. And so according to Jesus and Paul, one of the marks of a Christian truly trying to follow Jesus and grow in his gospel of grace, which is a mark of the good soil, the mark of the good soil that we talked about last week, it's when they desire to hear God's word with an open and unbiased mind. You, I'm not saying you're, you're not shocked. I'm not saying you're not challenged. I'm not saying you're not like in denial or you're resistant. I'm not saying that we cannot have those feelings or emotions. I'm just saying in the Christian life, those, motion, th those emotions have to be tempered with some Christian reason, we might say. And the, the root of this reason is that to follow Jesus means we're trying to follow him on his terms. In God's grace, we, we try to hear what God says to us. We process what God says to us. We pray about what God says to us. And then equally as important, we will likely have to act upon something that God says to us. In this case, we're talking about a matter of reorienting our hearts. No longer you know, telling Jesus who he is, but actually receiving who Jesus says he is. Now, on the contrary, the what does this say to me kind of thinking that a great many people approach under God or approach God under, this is, I'm saying, outside of the faith. This can happen inside of the faith. And in a very real way, we were all subject to this at one point in our life. It starts to reveal something intrinsic to the human condition. It starts to re reveal a, a common DNA, if you will, about all people. And it is this. Everyone has a belief system shaping them in life. Everyone. Even the person who says they believe in nothing, they have something shaping their life. There is not a person on earth who does not have something that is determining and directing how they see life, how they process life. Everyone has a compass of some sort. A moral compass, a spiritual compass, even if they make it up on their own, piecemeal it together, even to say I have no compass is to have a compass, right? That's sort of like what Rush said many years ago. If you choose not to decide, you still made a choice. Like the absence of this uh, does not mean that it is not present in your life. You're still making a decision about what to do based on the fact that you don't believe anybody is informing your decisions. That's a really confused statement. I agree. I'm not going to try to explain it. It informs the way we see ourselves and others, right? And so the real goal of what Paul says here in Philippians is to recognize this. It's to recognize the reality about belief. And then to figure out whether or not in our lives, in the life of those trying to pursue Jesus, who the main person is that is shaping what we believe. And remember, in our paradigm, belief is not ignorance. Belief is almost always a step just beyond what you can see, right? It's not that you are blindly following nothing. There's a pretty robust trajectory to the Christian faith. It is that trajectory we're talking about. You see, to truly experience the good life, the soil that is good and healthy, at some point we have to know we are going to be challenged to lay down the things that we've let shape our lives, intentionally or unintentionally, that are not of Jesus. Because good soil knows God wants to work in our minds and our hearts to create a gospel transformation. The good soil knows that, that the great farmer of the world has got his hands, he's got his arms elbow deep in our hearts, and he's trying to do something in us. He is trying to constantly change our understanding of the way we think life should be and things should be to the way he actually says life is. This is the root of the good soil. Do we affirm what we think should be or are we constantly trying to grow in the ways of, the, of life and faith and family and friends and relationships in the ways that God says it should be since he is the, the arbiter and creator of all things. He is all truth and he has made all of this. So tilling this type of soil in your heart is the beginning of a lifelong process where you seek to see Jesus as he says he is. You ask the second question, 
What is it you say to me? This is the truth that we are introducing today. And it is a very important truth to grasp. Because I just said to you and hundred and something other people last week that I'm going to ask all of you to read the Bible together for the next year. And I think it's really important that as we start to talk about a corporate rhythm for studying the word, that we start to have a general understanding of the pitfalls we can fall into if we're not careful. We're challenging the whole body to read scripture. And it is important to know that the only way to accurately know who Jesus is, that's why we read scripture and what he wants for your life. He, he, what he wants is for you to marinate your life in his word. He wants you to be like a really tasty steak that's been stewing in this for days and weeks and months and years. And the flavor and the aroma of that. Some of you are like, lunch, give it to me now. I hear you over here. That aroma is powerful. Yes, Jesus, somebody said. <laughs> so the bottom line in all of this is that many people never, and some Christians can't fully experience the kind of joy Paul talks about in Philippians. They're never going to understand what Jesus is saying in John because they're at a place in their life where they won't. It's not that they can't. They won't. That's the difference. They can't embrace, excuse me, they won't embrace the hearing posture. Jesus is necessary to bring it about. And that's likely because they've recognized the challenge it will present to their lives. It's going to mean change. Simply put, they're unwilling to follow Jesus by listening to his words. And I have shared this idea, this general concept in the past, but one of my greatest and growing concerns for the local church over the years has been seeing the number of people who have very particular beliefs about who Jesus is. Like, if you were to talk to them, they have a, a, a definition, a body of ideas that really shapes faith. They have ideas about what the church is and what it should be doing. They have ideas about what their lives in Jesus are supposed to look like. But when you start to press into that, when you start to, to drill into the root of where these ideas are coming from, oftentimes, not always, there are people who have formulated these truths because Jesus is speaking to, into their lives. But a great many times, what happens is they're, they're sort of unashamedly saying, well, these are just the ways that I think it should be. And I don't really have anything to validate that, but I'm okay with that. This is what I mean by a gospel-less or a Bible-less Christianity. A Jesus-less Christianity, if you think about it. The Bible leads us to Jesus, and Jesus leads us to the truth. And so if we embrace truth in our life that is without Jesus based on the Bible, we don't have at least Christian truth. We've got some truth. We've got some belief, but it's not the one Jesus wants us to have. And what happens here is, because I'm a firm believer that everybody believes something, something starts to shape the way you think. It starts to shape the emotions of your heart, the way you view life. And let me tell you what those things are. You'll start to turn to things like personal experiences. Your past dictates your future, whether it's good or bad. You might even say preferences, like what I prefer is now what shapes my life. Opinions, right? Dime a dozen all over the world. You can get drowned in, in opinions. Those things will start to shape how you understand your life and your faith. Sometimes we turn to friends for that. And in good community, we'll get to that. That can be a good thing, right? But there's also not so good community. Like we see, uh, we see stories in the Bible where counsel is bad. And people who out of love are trying to direct your life, but, but they're directing it in a way that's, that's gospel-less. Sometimes the shifting sands of culture will hit us. You know, there was a great book I read years ago in seminary called a Christ and Culture, and it was written by a guy named Richard Niebuhr. Excellent read if you're ever looking to pick something up and, and grow. And he talked about one of the problems with modern Christianity is that uh, in many examples, uh, Christ is subordinated to culture. Essentially, we just say, well, you know, the world says this, so Jesus now looks like this. And our desire is to see Christ transforming culture. That's what getting in the Word does, is we no longer are, are driven by anything but Jesus. And so no matter what it is, 
that's shaping us. If we have a gospelless Christianity, what happens is it starts to reshape a very important question in our life. Who is Jesus to me and what does he expect of me? That's the question that, that is a problem. We, we really have to ask the question that says, you know, who, who is Jesus based on who Jesus says he is? And now what does he expect of me? When you get to the place in your life where you're starting to ask the question, well, who, who does Jesus say he is? What does he want for my life? It's a really good sign because it means that God is starting to work his gospel in your life from the inside out. And that is an important evidence that God is in your life and that you're good soil. There is transformation taking place from the inside out. And so how do we get to this place where our life looks like that? This is why we read a third verse this morning. This leads me to the second truth that I want to share with you this morning. There is a rhythm, if you will, kind of a case study we can examine that shows this processing process. No, no pun intended. It's this. If you want to live in good soil, you must first experience a new birth in Jesus. What I mean by this is if you want to see the world through the king's eyes, you have to know the king. You have to be reborn. You have to get to a place in your life where you, you trust Jesus for all you are in life. You receive his goodness and his grace. You are redeemed and saved. And over time, you begin to, to press into that rhythm. The clearest teaching we have about this hearing, listening matter, is found in a conversation Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. I'll reread a very brief portion of it. Abe did a good job of summarizing that whole text. But in John 3, 1 through 3, very briefly, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, uh, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. This is amazing. This is a guy who says, like, we really believe you're from God. But I just don't believe you're from God. That's essentially what he says right here. You were talking about like the wires being crossed and the belief systems that inform life. Now, one of the reasons this is probably the most popular story in the New Testament, it's, if it's not the most popular, it is up there. It's in like the top 10, uh, is because in a very human way, we get to observe the life of a man who is in the process of trying to figure out who Jesus really is. And remember, maybe you're here saying like, I've been a Christian for like 25 years and you know, I've, I've experienced a new birth. I'm telling you if, you, if you believe what I said last week, that part of the new birth is the mini resurrection. With every passing day and season of life, God is calling us to die to something in order to receive new life in him in that area of life. Then, then this actually still really applies to you. You are probably asking questions or should be asking questions about how to grow in Jesus, how to figure out a little more deeply who Jesus is. This, is, this here is, is salvation, but it, it matters in every area of life, including how we grow in Jesus. You've got a guy here who, in a very particular area of life, has finally worked up the courage to literally ask Jesus who he is. And in today's church vernacular, we'd say Nicodemus is like a seeker. He's a guy who is who feels like he needs something more in life, and he's trying to figure out if Jesus' gospel is the answer to that question. And so briefly, uh, we get this backdrop of what's going on here in these short verses. John tells us that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And what this simply means is this is a really big deal. Because a Pharisee means extremely educated in Jewish law. He's a rabbi and a teacher, qualified to teach others in the law. And as a part of the Sanhedrin, he's like on the board of those who determine what the law is. Like he is, uh, he is top-notch in every way. A community pillar, proven character. He's a, a ruler, if you will, of rulers. Ex educated, trusted, and expected. He's a guy, and here's where it gets squirrely. He's a guy everybody goes to to get answers in life. 
And he comes to this place in his life where he realizes, I've got some, some unanswered questions in my life. I've got some stuff I don't know how to deal with here. And that's the point of the story. That's what makes it so human. Because of his stature, he thinks he's got it all figured out. This is the, this is the first question. What does all this mean to me? When I answer that question that way, I start saying, like, I can answer this question without God because I think I've got it all figured out. He's still asking, even though he's got most everything figured out. The most significant question in his life is not figured out yet. He's asking Jesus. He's going to him saying, what, what, what do you mean to me? Like, the world says this about you, and preferences say this about you, and opinions say this about you, and the Pharisees hate you, and the Sanhedrin doesn't really want you around anymore. I'm hearing all of these things. And he finally works up the courage to say, like, what do you mean to me? And Jesus gently corrects him and says, that's the reason why you don't know who I am. He says, this is the attitude that is keeping you from hearing my voice. And this is why in this story, I remembered the, the first time I ever studied this passage, I was teaching to a student ministry like almost 20 years ago. And I remember thinking, man, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says like, hi. And Jesus an answers a question he hasn't even asked yet. That's what happens here. Jesus like cuts to the chase and abruptly interrupts him and says, hey, it's good to meet you. But uh, unless you're born again, you're never going to understand me. Unless you take me on my terms, you're never going to see me in my kingdom. You're never going to find what you're looking for. Ever. If ever there's a, an evidence of how Jesus uh, sees the heart, it's this. He moves around the pleasantries and goes right to the root. Now remember, Nicodemus has his life entirely put together from the outside at least. And he most likely expects to hear Jesus answer his most significant life questions by affirming this. This is sort of what happens with the rich young ruler, right? He wants to know Jesus deeply, but he will not get rid of that which drives his life most. Stuff. Jesus says, you got to love that less if you want to love me. You're never going to see me if you love that stuff more. And in that case, he goes the other way. But in this case, we know because, you know, Nicodemus is at the, he's, he's integral in burying Jesus. He's risking neck his neck now after Jesus' death and his resurrection. He is completely on board. This is the beginning of a guy who gets what we're talking about here. Or at least Jesus is beginning to work this out in his heart. And so Nicodemus has it all put together and likely expects to be affirmed in that area. But much like what I shared with you earlier, uh, that's not what actually happens. I bet Nicodemus, if we could have him here today, would say, like, I was expecting Jesus to say something like, hey, man, you know, you ask who I am. I'm going to tell you who I am. You're, you're a smart dude. Uh, and many of the questions you're asking me, you think you already have the answer to. And because of that, you know, my father and I, we've, we've evaluated that verse in John. And we have said that uh, you actually can get to my father around me. You, you know, you clearly have the, the mental faculties to complete, uh, the complete ability to, to know God on your own terms. You've done a good job of living life by your own terms, and now God wants me to tell you that he's okay with you continuing to do that, and you can know him. That's what it means to know and truly, truly love God, is to love him based on what you think. But Jesus' response here is, is anything but that. And it really shows us that Nicodemus has his world rocked. His worldview is challenged here. What he believes, this is a guy who believes that he believes this stuff and then finds out in the midst of it, something else is shaping his belief. Nicodemus' worldview is rocked. He quickly learns the best of humanity, of which this is the category he is in, cannot earn its, its, favor, its way into God's favor. He's saying, listen, yeah, you're top notch, but top notch is not what my father needs for, for grace. It's not even grace if that's how this works. And on the contrary, uh, the worst of humanity can keep themselves out of God's favor if they truly understand what the gospel means about life in God's economy. 
Because it isn't about what you are or are not to know God thoroughly, to know him well, to experience his grace. It's about who Jesus says you are. And so the story goes on to tell us that Nicodemus, like a great many of us, doesn't get this at first. It's like I said last week. It's like the death, death is coming. The, the coffin begins to close. God has shown you something. And at first, when he rocks you at the core of who you are, it's like he's taking something away from you. Death is ensuing. The lid of the coffin closes, and it's like the life of you is snuffed out in a very critical area. Last week, we talked about some moral stuff. But if you can hang on, if you can hang on, what happens is eventually God will open the lid to that coffin. And when the light breaks through, you're going to be resurrected in a new area. Something in you will die that brings a new life to you. And what happens here is Nicodemus, over time, begins to really have his question answered. He recognizes that trusting his own voice is no longer what is going to get him to where he thinks he needs to go. His world is challenged by the truth of Jesus' gospel. And it is this idea, this foundational idea, that informs much of where we're going to be going over these next weeks. This episode shows us something really important about what it means to be good soil. One of the evidences of good soil. One of the signs you are good soil is when you start to feel like you are standing between two worlds in key areas of your life. It's sort of like when you are moving in direction A for all of your days, and then you have this conversation with Jesus or with people who love Jesus, and then direction A is like questioned a little bit, and you hear about direction B, and all that is going on in your mind and heart is you are standing between two places whether it is trusting in Christ for the first time or growing in him in new and more meaningful areas. You're looking at where you are and where this guy Jesus says he wants to take you, and you're in the middle. And that is a good place to be, actually. That might sound like a hard place to be, but it's a good place to be because it means there are sensitivities in your life now to see the difference between the two paths. And that's why the story of Nicodemus, much like even some of the harder stories in Scripture, we can look at them as hard. But if we understand that God loves us and cares for us, and he always wants what is best for us, by knowing him more deeply, these stories are always always uh, measures of grace. Nicodemus' difficult conversation with Jesus is actually a conversation that is about grace. And that's why this story resonates with people who believe it, or who are, who are in this camp. They're, they're currently wrestling with the reality of Jesus' gospel in their life. And so you can summarize his life like this. At this point in his life, he's interested in Jesus, but not particularly open to Jesus' truth. He's one of the soils. And this is a crossroad. This is how we'll end this morning. This is a crossroad believers and unbelievers regularly find themselves in or at. It's when you get to the place where Jesus is trying to speak into an area of your life. And Christ starts calling you out of a place in your own life that is keeping you from experiencing his joy. From living in the good soil. And he's trying to move you into a place firmly anchored in his life. When that happens, when you're standing between two places in life, the question you have to ask yourself, we kind of go back to where we began. You're going to have to ask yourself a question there. Ultimately, what do I think this is saying to me? Like, what do I think about this? Or what is God truly trying to say to me about the next step in my life? When you're in the middle, do I make the decision on where I go? Or do I really press into Jesus strongly enough to ask him and to have the courage to go to the way he wants me to go? So while both believer and unbeliever can find themselves in this place, the weight of this reality can often feel heavier on the believer. I'm not saying it is any heavier, but I think it feels heavier. And here's why. It it's just gets harder. Because if you really understand what it means to be a disciple, part of what we agree to when we choose to follow Jesus 
is to follow him with gladness and joy in our heart wherever he leads us. And if you have a heart that's sensitive to God, that has to be in the back of your head. I said I'd follow you, but I'm just not gonna, right? That's got to create a tension. Or I don't care what you say, Jesus, I'm just going to believe this. When it no longer creates a tension, when we're no longer in between, you know, option A and option B, when we can't feel that anymore, that's a sign of hardness. And that's a sign that we might be drifting into those other soil categories we spoke about last week. This is truly where the rubber meets the road for many of us when it comes to our life, our faith, and our followership of Jesus. And so once again, we read a truth from the Bible where Jesus challenges us to think through how we will receive God's truth. When Paul says, listen, fix your eyes on what is good and noble and worthy, follow us. What he's saying is, is follow those who follow Jesus. And those who truly follow Jesus, follow Jesus for who he says he is. So as we move to the communion table, remember, it is God's desire for us that we follow him with all of our heart. The table shows that he gives us nothing less than all of himself. When, when God made the sacrifice for us, it was fully himself. It wasn't pieces and particles. He gave his all to give us redemption. And we will, we will reciprocate that in very broken ways, believe me. Pieces and particles. We give back in pieces and particles. But we're never going to see growth in that area if we're not striving to, to, to recognize the truth and striving to actually get to a place where we, we want to give more to the Lord. So desire to love Him with all your heart. Resolve in your heart right now by God's grace to be the good soil. And know one of the greatest tools God has given you to be good soil, to be a, a soil that, is, that you can be, or He can be firmly planted in, is to be in His Word. And so right now behind me, uh, we're going to repost the annual Bible reading plan, the link to it, that we gave you last week. And we'll have a couple of minutes of silence here. Write it down. If you haven't already, uh, take a picture of it. Uh, do whatever you do. You know, write it on your hand with a pen, I, whatever you want to do. But take a couple of moments just to notate this. And I really want to encourage you to pray about whether or not this is a next step for you. If you are really in a coherent way in the Word right now in such a way that you're, see, you're receiving the full counsel of God. You're not just kind of even, maybe you are in the Word, but you're cherry-picking all this stuff that really works well for you. Uh, this is a way to actually get you challenged in some areas that, that might, you might find God is going to bring some stuff up with you that you would not necessarily bring up with yourself. I speak about that from experience. <laughs> Take a minute just to notate it. If you had some trouble getting it today, contact us. Go to the website. We'll get it to you tonight or tomorrow, okay? And we'll post this for the weeks that follow. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is just uh, remember, this is sort of a season this summer. We want to bring some, we want to really work our soil this summer to the degree that we can see God make fruit in it, produce fruit. And so I want to challenge you to commit to faithfully worship with us through these next months in this room as we continue to press into this truth. If you're traveling and abroad on vacations, I know that happens. Uh, do your best to, to engage this. You know, download the podcast. Get this piped into your, uh, your, I, your iPhone or your Android device so that you can stay connected with us through the Word and certainly through our teaching. And as you do both, ask yourself, when it comes to following Jesus, as we move to the table, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you? about how you hear his voice and follow his truth, and what is it that you will do about it when you leave this room today?